Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's bring in Max Abelson, a finance reporter for us here at Bloomberg, to give a sense of what his big takeaway has been so far uh, from the hearing. So, Max? Well, look, I have to say, these executives look confident. They look unrattled. I don't know if you folks are watching, but it op- the hearings opened with Maxine Waters trying to sort of like rat-a-tat-tat go through a lightning round. It was a lightning round. That's right. It was a lightning round. She was um, interrupting them. They were sort of interrupting each other. She was plowing through questions. I mean, it was fascinating. And, and as a viewer uh, and a live blogger here for the Bloomberg Terminal, I mean, honestly, it was exciting. But... There has not been um, there have not been any bombshells. There there hasn't been anything scandalous and exciting. There hasn't even been a moment as um, shocking as when Mnuchin told Maxine Waters uh, just in the last forty eight hours, you know, that she had to bang her gavel as as the, the uh, Treasury Secretary told her um, not long ago. You know, the, the reality is it's been um, relatively predictable. Nothing crazy. So, Max, what would be a a successful day here for these uh, CEOs uh, sitting in front of the Congress people? Well, remember what this hearing is. It's, it's about accountability. And if they can leave today giving Congress a sense that, you know, these banks are uh, manageable, they're relatively ethical, and, you know, that what they're trying to do is help the country and help the economy rather than trying to hurt the country and hurt the economy, which was, I think it's fair to say, is a picture that, that critics had in their mind, you know, not long ago in the wake of the financial crisis. That, that counts as a success. But, you know, it's also possible that con- Congress members will get in some body blows over things like investments in guns or forced arbitration or, by the way, a lack of diversity. What we're seeing is, you know, seven white men standing in a row, just like in the tobacco hearings in the 90s. I'm wondering if that's going to come up later today. It's interesting. Lloyd Blankfein, the former chief executive of Goldman Sachs, just tweeting out, boy, I really miss my old job, exclamation point, exclamation (laughs) point, exclamation point. And he was uh, he was quoting a tweet from The New York Post of lawmakers grilling Wall Street bigwigs over risks to the U.S. economy. It does sort of highlight how being the CEO of a major Wall Street bank is increasingly political and it is a political role. And it is interesting to note this at a time when Wells Fargo is looking for another head. And, you know, what is that role at this point. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the reason that Wells Fargo is looking for a new chief executive officer is because the last one did a pretty infamous job when he was hauled before Congress not too long ago. Politics are a part of, uh, of, of Wall Street, and Wall Street is a part of politics. One thing that we've been tracking on the live blog is that um, even Democrats like Carolyn Maloney and, and especially Republicans, some of their top donors, in some cases, their literal top donors over their political careers are banks or a bank lobbying group. You know, politics and, and finance are really intertwined in the United States. And, and I think the starkest reminder of that is that some of these CEOs, you know, some, some of the banks that they work for would not be functioning companies. If it hadn't been for the bailout, um, it's now, oh my gosh, it's 11 years ago. It's more than a decade ago. So politics are, it's just a crucial part of of, of what happens on Wall Street. But so far, it feels like that um, these executives 
have the upper hand. They, they sort of, um, they just seem relatively calm and comfortable. So Max, let's, let's take a look at Jamie Dimon. It seems like a lot of the questions are going to him. He's taking, in some cases, the lead here. Uh, how do you think his performance has been so far? Well, first of all, you also have to give a shout out to Maxine Waters' performance. She opened this by saying, I've read that you all, you executives are going to try to rely on Jamie Dimon taking the microphone, and I'm not going to allow that. <laughs> so she, she preempted Dimond um, stealing the spotlight for too long, which, you know, I just have to say I thought was fascinating. But Dimon is such an important, influential character on Wall Street. I mean, first of all, all of the executives here are essentially, you know, pups compared to Jamie Dimon. We have, you know, Solomon, who um, took his job, you know, months ago. We have Charlie Scharf up, up on, up on uh, the, y- y- sitting, sitting a couple of seats away. Scharf was basically Diamond's protege at J.P. Morgan, um, and then he lost his job and, and, and ended up uh, an executive elsewhere. At Wells Fargo, by the way, um, my, my excellent colleague Hannah did, did a um, rundown of all the people who might take over the CEO spot at Wells Fargo, and a couple of them are people who now work or have worked for Jamie Diamond. So... He's just such a powerful, such an influential figure. You know, he's also just in a superficial sense. He's just also a, a really magnetic guy. You know, he captures the attention of the room, which is why I want to warn, cool warn listeners that. <laughs> uh, well, well, why is a complicated question, but I want to warn folks that um, Michelle Davis and I wrote about um, a really interesting sort of ecosystem of protesters who've been following Jamie Dimon around. You know, he's mag- magnetic not only in the sense that he attracts um, you, you know fans. He he's magnetic in the sense that he also tracks critics. And we, we wrote about critics who've been falling around the United States, which is why I think it's fair to say that later this afternoon, it's totally possible we're going to hear from, from Chase critics um, in, 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 in the hearing itself. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit because this all comes ahead of bank earnings and that'll get kicked off talking about Jamie Dimon. JP Morgan will be among the first to report alongside Wells Fargo. And I'm just wondering how that backdrop complicates these hearings. The fact that banks are expected to report uh, some subdued numbers at best, especially due to a lack of volumes in fixed income trading and just in general, uh, a feeling of malaise in markets during the first quarter. How does that affect these hearings? You know, I think that you can't take your eye off the ball of, of the big picture, which is that the banks um, are still so remarkably profitable. You know, over the last um, few years, they've gotten they've gotten bigger. They've uh, they've they've quite literally made more money than they've ever made before. And I think that it will be hard for Wall Street to plead um, tough times or to focus on fear um, when just I, I think that it would be easy for bank critics just to point out just just the simple scale of how big they've gotten and and how and how lucrative uh, their, their businesses have been, even if uh, the short term outlook might might look starker than they'd like. So, Max, where do you think again, you've mentioned uh, that this uh, morning session was relatively uh, tame. Where do you think uh, some of these bank CEOs could be exposed uh, here in front of the committee? Well, you know, one change we've seen recently after after Michelle Davis and I wrote wrote that story that I mentioned about the ecosystem of bankers is that um, J.P. Morgan came out and they said, you know, actually, we're no longer going to do business. We're no longer going to fund private prisons. Um, and, I, you know, I have to say, as a journalist who had written about the subject only a few months earlier, I was really surprised. It was sort of amazing to see um, the powerful kind of change their ways um, thanks to the actions of, of, of relatively powerless critics. J.P. Morgan made a decision that they were going to change. 
it would be fascinating if private prisons come up again. It'll be fascinating to see how much um, attention climate change, coal, uh, guns get. We saw David Solomon talk about uh, not funding, I, I believe, uh, you know, bump, bumper stocks. You know, any of these things could become big, big, big attention-grabbing headlines. Even, even a relatively uh, boring subject that's close to my heart because I've been reporting on it here at Bloomberg News: arbitration, forced arbitration. That came up once. You know, it's totally possible that that will get some more oxygen again. I think the question is, though, you know, how how long the oxygen lasts? How, just real quick here, can you tell us the sort of nuts and bolts of what's at stake with the arbitration issue? Yeah, I'm, honestly, I'm thrilled that you would ask. So, forced Great. arbitration was basically a, a subject that. No one really cared about only a few years ago, even though arbitration, which if if listeners don't know, is basically kind of like a parallel shadow system. You know, it's separate from courts. It's a privatized justice system. And it essentially was just kind of tiny uh, only a few decades ago. But it's it's now gigantic. You know, if you're listening to this and you have a job, the chances are you have also signed an arbitration agreement. That means you can't sue your boss. And certainly if you're a customer of these banks, there's also a good chance you've also signed an arbitration agreement, which would which would mean that you won't be able to sue uh, these firms. And that caused a great amount of consternation among critics um, who, who care about both employees and consumers. Now, the banks will say, or, or employers will say, arbitration is you know, a fair system. It's cheaper. It's kind of less embarrassing you know, because if someone has a, has a claim, you know, it doesn't have to go into court. You can sort of keep it, keep it relatively quiet. The, the rub there is that in the Me Too era, arbitration helps explain why you haven't seen as many right. harassment claims, um, you know, fall under the spotlight okay. as you as you might otherwise, because they get trapped in the arbitration system. Right. That's the kind of thing I'll be looking forward to seeing. And we'll be looking it, forward to reading. <laughs> Max Abelson, we're gonna have to stop it there. Thank you so much for, for joining us on short notice. Uh, we appreciate it, Max Abelson from Bloomberg News, covering all things financials. Our next guest has a very interesting theory how we can become better investors. We can become better investors not by playing the cards we're dealt any harder, but by playing the other players at the table a lot smarter. Ben Hunt, co-founder and chief investment officer of Second Foundation Partners, joins us. He's also creator and author of Epsilon Theory, uh, joins us from Reading, Connecticut. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Start off by just giving us your theory about how we can become better investors. Uh, you bet, Paul. Great, great to be on with you and Lisa. You know, what, what I mean when I say that we need to play the players rather than just play the cards is that I think it's really important, again, whether you're playing poker or you're playing the markets, to step back and, and understand what, what are the, the stories that at the poker table people are telling you with their bets and their bluffs. And in markets, what are the stories that we are reading in the financial media? What 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 are the what are the drums that Wall Street is beating? And, and I think if you step back and you try to look at that, it can give you a real edge up in understanding where markets are going and how you can play a better game. So give us a sense of what that means today. I mean, what is the drum that Wall Street is beating right now? What's the narrative? Sure, sure. Well, let me start with the drums that aren't beating. Because last year, this time last year, we had strong drum beating, a strong narrative that inflation was back and in, in rearing its head that there were concerns about that, that coming back. And then at the end of the spring, going into the summer, and certainly last fall, you had the, the, the trade war narrative that uh, you know, we're on the verge of, of, a, of a real global uh, economic slowdown, if not collapse, and leading to the, the, 
the sharp decline you saw in risk assets uh, last fall and then culminating in, in December. But what you saw in December was a resurgence of our old friend, the narrative that central banks are large and in charge, the narrative that central banks have got your back. And so far this year in 2019, that has absolutely been that dominant narrative that whatever happens in the world, right, whatever happens around Brexit or whatever happens with China or whatever happens anywhere, that the Fed, the ECB, the central banks of the world, that they've got your back. So, Ben, what as you take a look at the other players at the table right now, what are you learning? What are you thinking about where you think opportunities lie? Yeah, well, what's interesting is that is that while the you know the central bank narrative, the the this 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 idea that that the Fed, foremost and of, of all of them, has got your back, you know, this isn't new, right? We've been we've been we've seeing uh, the promotion of this narrative and and the reality of it, frankly, but but it is a lot of the the narrative here, the belief that the Fed is there to to support markets. You know, we've been seeing this for the better part of a decade now. What's, what's interesting to me is, is not that that narrative shows any sign of weakening, because it's, it's not. If anything, when you look at uh, what the White House is saying and in, you know, in terms of, of really trying to push the Fed to do more to stimulate, right, to do more easing rather than tightening, you know, I, I don't think that this, this drum beating, whether it's from the White House or from the Wall Street, is going to go away at all. But I'll tell you this, I do see it changing. And the, and the way I see it evolving is away from all central banks linking arms and doing this together. And more and more, you're seeing stories and a narrative about a competition, particularly around currencies, particularly between the U.S. and Europe. So practically, what does this mean in terms of well, investing? Practically, it means that, that, that both the ECB and the Fed are going to take steps no, no, no. to weaken their currencies. I mean, from your and perspective yeah. as an investor, like what should an investor do? Well, for, for investors, it depends what, what aspect you're, you're, you're thinking about investing. So if you're looking at the fixed income market, I think you've got a, a real chance here that uh, the, the inflation narrative will start to pick up again because the U.S. economy is, frankly, strong, and the Fed is going to do more to weaken, not to tighten. So that's, if, you're, if you're looking at anything that's going to be inflation-sensitive and if you're looking at stuff that's rate-sensitive, especially in the long end, you know, that, that's, a, that's a negative thing to happen. But if you're looking for stocks, look, I mean, both in the Europe and, and, and here in the States, both central banks are going to do more of what they've been doing, which is very supportive for equity markets. So, Ben, just kind of going back to your theory a little bit, is it, and I'm just kind of reading through a little bit, is this kind of a, a new way to kind of look at money flows? You know, I want to go, I want to hit them where they ain't kind of thing? Well, it's 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 an old idea, really. I mean, it's the it's it's the old idea that, and this goes back to you know how people played the game of markets back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. It's really looking at where is the money going, who are the other players on Wall Street, including who are the players like at the Fed and the White House and the like, and frankly, it's not looking less at fundamentals, but realizing that in this sort of world. The fundamentals mean less, and these money flows mean a lot more. So how do you factor in the algos, the quantitative funds that are doing ostensibly a lot of the trading in equities and, frankly, increasingly even in uh, the bond markets? I just have to wonder, you know, people, when, when there's price action that doesn't make sense or seems, you know, overly knee-jerk, people just said, you know, say, oh, it's the algos. How do you, how do you work with them playing poker against you? <laughs> 
Well, yeah, that's right. Well, I'll, I'll say two things. So, so most, most of the algos that are, that are out there are not what I'll call fast twitch uh, investors. They're, they're barges, right? So they, they can rebalance monthly, they rebalance slowly. And so they're, they really are like a barge and they follow along. What I'm trying to say is that at the margins, it actually makes the importance of discretionary investors, people who listen to this radio show and do something, people who are you know, managing a discretionary fund, when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're in the river with a lot of barges, it actually provides a lot more room for the, 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 the speedboats to, to, to make an impact. Right, so it's it, it's interesting that you're right that that more of the dollar volume, more of the money flows in terms of absolute amounts, is handled with these I'll call them kind of barge-like algorithms, but they follow along, and so it really is is, is interesting to me is that the, the 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 human money I think can actually make more of a difference, and so what I'm trying to look at is is what is the human money doing and what is the behavior of investors, that's where I think you need to go in terms of playing the player. So Ben, you know, one of the things um, that's become interesting for active investors over the last several years, the impact of social media uh, as a mm -hmm. way to kind of track investor sentiment. Who's paying attention to what stocks, to what stories, and Bloomberg has a lot of functionality on the terminal to help terminal users kind of track that. Is that kind of a 21st century way or an analogy to kind of money flows or reading the tape from days of yore? It's similar, but I'll, but I'll tell you this. When you're looking at social media, you know, we talk about influencers a lot, right? And, and that, that corollary for markets is it's not how many people are talking about something, whether, we're, you know, whether it's social media or, or it's a, a, you know, a television or newspaper. It's who is talking about it. So it's, it's, it's really, I think, much more important to follow the, the influencers because, as the name implies, they really do have an influence. We really are hardwired to respond to this stuff. And that's true if you're you know, a Twitter follower or, on, or on Instagram and you're following an influencer, or if you're listening to this show or to, to any of the financial media and, you know, Jay Powell decides to come out and say something. So I'll say this, when we're looking at media and we're looking at these signals that come out of the narrative, it's less important to see how many people are saying something and much more important to see who is saying something. Ben Hunt, thank you so much for being with us. Ben Hunt, co-founder and chief investment officer of Second Foundation Partners. Well, the ride-hailing business is going to get even more credit in the U.S. public equity markets. First, we had Lyft going public, and now news is coming out that Uber is right behind, likely to file in the next day or two. But as I look at Lyft here, the stock is down 6.2% today to $63 a share. Notable that it is well below its $72 IPO price, so at least the first ride-sharing investors are not feeling the love. But let's talk about the space in general. It's a lot going on. We welcome Mandeep Singh. Mandeep is a senior tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He ran, literally ran to see us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Did he did take a car? Ah, ah okay, <laughs> sorry. I'll be here all week. <laughs> so, Mandeep, let's start with, we'll get to Uber, but let's start with Lyft. It's not the IPO they were looking for, right? What do you, what do you, what do you think's going on here? 
I think uh, when I compare Lyft to Uber, Uber is definitely the iconic brand, you know, with scale, with probably more brand value than, you know, anybody else out there in the ride-sharing space. So it really reflects the pressure, you know, as an investor, as a ride-sharing investor, which one would you pick? And and my guess is, you know, given uh, Uber is much more diversified, it, it has got a lot more value generation potential than Lyft. Now, the difference between Lyft and Uber is, you know, when you look at take rates or average uh, revenue provider, Lyft is probably going to be better because of its niche focus. But that's not what investors are going to focus on because this space is not profitable at all. So it doesn't matter, you know, even if Lyft is <laughs> I a love financial it. animal yeah. saying it just it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Money, yeah. making it, yeah. nah, who cares? I love this image of Lyft coming out and putting their IPO on the market, getting their thing, and then Uber coming in with, you know, two big guns, like shooting at the sky, being like, here we come. I'm wondering, so it, the, the estimate is that they're going to get about $10 billion in the year's biggest IPO. Do you think it's going to be over, under? Do you think it seems like it's being fairly valued? How do you even assess the value of a company that makes no money and has yes, potential? So in, in this case, from what we have learned so far, Uber is about five times bigger than Lyft in terms of bookings, in terms of revenue. So the fact that they are trying to raise $10 billion makes sense because Lyft raised, raised, what, $2 billion, close to $2 billion in the IPO. So from that perspective, it makes sense. And my guess is they would have probably 11 to 12% of their float as well. So it will be, you know, oversubscribed. That would be my best guess. And it would kind of have a similar first day trading uh, like Lyft. But uh, it remains to be seen how it will trade, you know, a month or two down the line, given all the focus on profitability and cash burn. All right, so let's, let's go to those fundamental things like profitability and, and cash burn. Um, so lay out for people why, I guess what, what Lisa and I have heard from fund managers that we've talked to on the show is there really is a concern about that path to profitability. It's maybe more so than they, we, we thought about when Facebook and Google were coming public. What's different about these companies and makes it difficult to really envision that path to profitability? I think the biggest problem with ride-sharing business in general is uh, the economies of scale are missing. So when I look at the cost structure, there is no fixed cost structure for ride-sharing. The costs grow as you are scaling the business, which is unheard of. And you look at you know any other businesses with scale and fixed cost structure, you get operating leverage. That's not happening in case of Lyft. That's not happening in case of Uber, which is five times bigger than Lyft. So when will they see the economies of scale? When will the cost structure be stabilized so that you see operating leverage? And yeah, who knows, right? Yeah. Mandeep Singh, we're speaking with senior tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mandeep, I'm wondering, uh, you know, you say that maybe investors will start to care about cash burn and making money a, a month or two after the IPO. Why don't they care about it before buying into the IPO? I mean, I know this is crazy, but why are they going to wait, you know, a month? To because care. the euphoria <laughs> around an iconic brand. I mean, think of Uber Wait, as a global brand. This is like as big as Amazon I mean, we're or We're talking Facebook. about investors here with actual money, right? I mean, yeah. euphoria, I get it. But I mean, why would they care late? I, I, am I crazy, Paul? No, this, this is what, having been an IPO banker, what happens is you get the scarcity value, yeah. a surrounding initial public offering, yeah. and you're you're afraid to miss out. Yeah. So it's, you know, I really want to own X number of shares, so I'm going to go put an indication 
in interest of 10x. And then I, then I, oh boy, I got the shares. Now what do I do with them? So there's some of those issues. But I mean, I guess it's interesting for Lyft. They did go first before Uber. I guess most people thought it was an advantage, but maybe not in hindsight. Well, I mean, it was an advantage because they owned the narrative for the time and they were able to raise the IPO pricing. Remember Lyft raised the IPO yep. pricing. They were priced at the high end and the stock had a good pop the first day. The problem is this is happening too close. You know, right after Lyft, Uber is announcing its S1 within two weeks of that. And so there has already been a lot of focus in terms of the path to profitability. So it, it, it begs the question, how quickly can they get there? Okay, yeah. I want to ask the flip question, which is, did it hurt Uber to come second in the sense that Lyft's IPO is down, you know, and you are seeing a rocky kind of start to the whole share, uh, mm -hmm. share registration. So I'm just wondering, you know, for Uber's sake, could people say, you know, I kind of was burned on Lyft. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, feel as euphoric i i think in Basically, case of uber like, no, the brand value no, is <laughs> immense uh it, it's just the it, it, i i think people are going to invest in uber for for its brand for its value generation potential and and they're going to view it the same way as an amazon or facebook or one of these you know big companies so yeah. let's talk about valuation a little bit where where did uh, Lyft come public, give us kind of a metric, and then maybe where do you think Uber's going to come in above that, below that? Yeah, so Lyft uh, traded initially at about 10 times trailing 12-month sales. That, now, that was at the very high end. I think in case of Uber, it's reasonable to expect that they will trade at the 10 times sales metric as well, so that should take them above the $100 billion market cap. And uh, yeah, that's that's a reasonable expectation. So I wanna go to something you just said, that Uber is going to be in the same camp as Amazon. Is that right? I mean, in other words, what is the barrier to entry with a ride-sharing company other than recognition and the downloads of the app on, on people's uh, smartphones? It seems like the barrier to entry is bigger with Amazon than it is for Uber. Well. Ride sharing is a consolidated space. So you may hear about new companies coming up, you know, trying to uh, cater to a niche segment. But right now, ride sharing, the way I look at it globally, there are four to five players. SoftBank is an investor in almost all of them. And it's a very consolidated market, which, to be very honest, helps, should help them with the profitability aspect. And a new entrant can get, uh, you know, create the, the same mass. kind of scale and they don't have the same data as Uber and Lyft have around the drivers, around riders, around cities. So that's a competitive advantage, I think. How about the, uh, one of the pushbacks that we heard, not just for Lyft and Uber, but the other tech um, companies in general, is the super voting stock and the control it puts yeah. into the founders. Is that something that you think is a, a real investor concern or are most people just pretty sanguine about it? So I think that should play out favorably for the Uber IPO. The fact that they don't have special voting rights, the fact that you know everybody is an equal investor or will be an equal investor in uh, Uber, I think should be favorable for the Uber uh, uh, IPO. But uh, I think with Lyft, given its niche focus, having uh, control with the founders isn't such a bad thing. I think they can steer where they're going with monetization and expansion, and that may not be a bad thing. What about the regulatory risks here? The idea that you have a lot of cities pushing back, especially because of cab drivers that are getting uh, put out of business. 
do you see that as being a material threat that is incalculable and concerning for investors that are overcome by their euphoria, evidently? Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, it is a big threat and something where Uber has seen a lot of lawsuits and so far the settlements they have had have been for smaller amounts. So uh, I don't think it's that big of a risk, but you never know if, if a big city like New York or San Francisco comes up with a verdict that goes against them. This is a huge threat. Okay, so it's not just Uber. We've got some other tech IPOs coming up uh, in the next uh, quarter or two. What else are you and the BI tech team looking at? So Pinterest is obviously a big one. You know, there there is a food delivery company, Postmates, that's likely to go public. And we just published uh, some research around, you know, ride-sharing companies likely to acquire food delivery because the top line growth for ride sharing is so much better. They have such a long runway compared to food delivery, which is much smaller and they don't have the scale. So we think uh, ride sharing will be the consolidators. The Ubers and Lyft will eventually end up buying a lot of food delivery companies and consolidate this space even further. And those are seamless and, and things like that. Grubhub, and Grubhub yeah. those are the ones and they're going to become uh, they're going to fall under Uber and Lyft. That's a really interesting thesis, and that actually makes a whole lot of That's sense. That's what those smart people in Bloomberg Intelligence do. They write that smart research. You can find <laughs> it on the Bloomberg Terminal, BI Go. All right, Mandeep Singh, Senior Tech Industry Analyst for Paul. Bloomberg Intelligence. There you go. <laughs> Joining Thanks. us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Well, 2019 has been a risk-on environment, no doubt about that. Stocks and bonds are both staging strong rallies after that very weak end to 2018. To get a sense of where there are values in interest rates and in the currency markets, we welcome our next guest, Ed Al-Husseini, Senior Interest Rate and Currency Analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. He joins us from hopefully sunny and warm Minneapolis, Minnesota, but somehow I doubt it. Um, <laughs> so, Ed... Just give us a sense from your perspective, if you step back and look at the global landscape for interest rates, where, I'm sorry, for currencies, where are you seeing value now across the various currencies? Sure, yeah. So we've had, um, you know, the headroom has shrunk a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, currency valuation. I would say the broad thrust, uh, and this has been our position for some time now, is that the, the dollar continues to be quite attractive. First, it's a, it's a largely positive carry trade versus most of the developed market peers. And second, when we look at growth differentials, you know, despite the fact that we've had a slowdown here in the U.S., growth outside the U.S. looks looks particularly weak, you know, particularly in, in, in Europe and Asia. So that differential continues to skew in favor of the dollar. So being long dollar versus, uh, versus the euro looks attractive. And then if you look at the smaller open economies within the developed market space that are starting to ease to accommodate for that slowdown in global growth, uh, you're looking at Sweden, you're looking at Canada, you're looking at Australia, those currencies continue to look quite vulnerable as well. Let's just set the record straight. Minneapolis in spring is absolutely beautiful. And Ed, please support Minneapolis because I lived uh, near there uh, not so long ago and it is absolutely a beautiful All right, I stand a corrected. beautiful city except for in the winter when it's 30 degrees below zero. Uh, but Ed, I want to I take the other side of this, the Euro side of this and talk about positioning because you're right that it does make sense that, that Europe is weakening more than the US. So on a relative basis, the, the dollar seems like it should uh, strengthen versus the euro. And yet 
the short euro positioning is so crowded right now. How do you sort of reconcile that or uh, are you concerned about that? It's a stretch trade. There's no, there's no way around that. I think I think it's absolutely correct to be concerned. Um, I think at this point, you don't want to front run the data too aggressively in the sense that if you do expect there to be some, some global reflation coming back onto the table in the second half of the year, it does make sense to start getting along the door or at, uh, at least cut, cut your dollar longs. Um, but you don't want to run, front run that too aggressively in an environment where the ECB is still very much firmly focused on, on easing policy while the Fed is um, uh, essentially sitting on a task. Interesting. So, Ed, as we think about sterling um, sitting here one thirty ninety one, let's go to the dark side. If we have a hard Brexit, where do you think that goes? I mean, the correct answer is I, I have no clue. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> the, on, the honest answer. <laughs> the honest answer. <laughs> it's, it's an exceptionally difficult, um, you know, setup for for the sterling at the moment. Um, uh, you know, we have had some 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 more positive you know noise uh, in in the political setup in the course of the past uh, couple of weeks. So the probability of that of that hard exit, at least in the short term, seems to have diminished. Um, whether you're able to trade on it uh, is is very difficult, and it, it is a currency where people are positioned both ways. But those trading ranges are exceptionally tight right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether you look at, at the spot space or, or or the option space, so it's um, it's a very difficult trade to set up. So, Ed, I want to switch gears a little bit to interest rates because every analyst and economist who we speak to, or not everyone, but the vast majority, say that the bond market is priced in too much pessimism in the United States, given how much the U.S. economy is growing. And yet, bond yields continue to fall. So who's right? And is it true? Do you agree with the idea that there is too much pessimism baked into uh, where Treasury yields are today? I don't think so. And I think we're right about fair. I think versus where we were, you know, say three to six months ago, there's definitely a lot less value in the longer end of the curve. So being exposed to treasury duration is, is less attractive at this stage. Um, and I think the value has shifted to being long in, in, in the front end, uh, so that the cash to the two-year segment of the curve. Uh, that's the way I would set it up. In terms of, you know, the, the, the longer end, trading around 250 right now, I'd say sort of the, the medium-term range has been 235 to 255. Uh, that's very much fair, given the ramp down in growth and inflation that we've seen. And I think the inflation picture, to me, is is much more troubling. Core inflation, you know, continues to to weaken. Momentum broke somewhere in the middle of last year, and and, and has continued to weaken since then, um, despite the fact that the economy is is relatively healthy. Um, and the Fed's ability to get inflation up uh, beyond 2% is quite limited. Uh, in other words, the risks that inflation moves to the upside uh, are quite limited. This has brought down the ceiling on rates across the curve. Um, in, in our minds, you know, when we look at uh, sort of the, the fair value trading range for, right. for the 10-year, 12 months out, somewhere between 250 and 275. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's not a ton of value, but I think it's, it's very close to fair. Very good. Ed Al-Husseini, Senior Interest Rates and Currency Analyst from Columbia Threadneedle Investments from lovely springtime Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Ed, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.